an old adage about cinema, that it may seem a principally visual medium, but in fact, its soundtrack and sound design are just as important. As the late American actor, filmmaker, playwright, and composer Melvin Van Peebles put it, quote, music or sound in a film is a character as important as another character, end quote. And so it is with our more general encounter with the city. While it may seem that we are surrounded and even overwhelmed by an assemblage of visual inputs, our experience of the city is multisensory. And sound, in particular, is fundamental in constituting how we experience cities. People walking, standing and conversing, vehicles moving, stopping and reversing, pounding construction equipment, amplified music and announcements, pedestrian crossing beacons, the calls of birds and other animals, the reverberations of hallways and rooms. These and other audible effects and affects shape our urban experience, a fact not at all obscure for sight-impaired urban travelers and explorers. Sound, then, is a primary dimension of the mediated city, and one of the most noted and explicit kinds of sonic urban mediation are personal sound devices. The use of such technologies, from the portable cassette player to the smartphone paired with Bluetooth headphones, has often been framed as a way to manage one's experience of urban life, to limit, cope, or otherwise make more pleasant its noise, complexity, drudgery, dreariness, excitement, and strangeness, to create an auditory bubble and partly withdraw from urban experience and replace it with a chosen auditory overlay. And yet, there may be another way to look at it. What if we think of such technologies as being as much about engagement as disengagement, as much about attention as inattention? Might we then see how personal sound devices are part of the wider auditory complexity of urban experience? Ways of remodulating, remixing, reformatting, or retuning our interface with urban life. The Mediated City is a podcast series by me, Scott Rogers. In this series, we rethink media through the city and the city through media. We will approach the media urban access both old and new, analog and digital, and most of the time, we'll avoid these kind of categories altogether. Some of you listeners will be students in my module, Media, Digitalization, and the City, in which we'll discuss and work on these themes in more detail. In this episode, the fourth in our series, we explore the urban auditory experience, both in general and with regard to personal sound technologies.
The key idea I want to get across is this. We have relative capacities to modulate the auditory as a way of managing individual and collective experience. One mode of such modulation is sonically fragmenting or limiting our attention to the city. But we should not forget how, through practices of listening more generally, we navigate, engage, and understand urban life. Avoiding an implicit prioritization of the visual in thinking, or doing a podcast, about the mediated city is difficult. As Sarah Barnes notes in a 2014 article titled, Sounds Different, in the journal Space and Culture, the city more generally has tended to be engaged through various visual prisms, cartographical, cinematic, architectural, photographic, painterly. Visual representation, or experience, has not only strongly informed practices such as city planning, filmmaking, architecture, photojournalism, or art, but it also conditions notions of modernity more generally. As Barnes points out, Martin Heidegger described the, quote, conquest of the world as picture, end quote, in which what could be seen became the preeminent form of knowledge. For Walter Ong, a peculiar, modern, instrumental rationality, rooted in what he called visualism. Against the primacy of the visual, Barnes observes, a range of philosophers and theorists, for example, Martin Heidegger, Henri Lefebvre, Gaston Bachelard, George Simmel, Walter Ong, and Stephen Connor have presented sound as a kind of experiential and perhaps interior counterpoint to the instrumental and perhaps more public dominance of the visual. This has influenced many scholars writing about the auditory, as well as other non-visual senses, to focus on its non-representational, affective, and emotional dimensions, to draw out a contrast, whether implicitly or explicitly, with visuality, characterized as representational, rational, or instrumental. Thinking about the auditory like this is a useful corrective against the prevailing visual narrative we tell about urban life. But it is also limiting. As Jonathan Stern argues in his 2003 book, The Audible Past, Overemphasizing hearing as a kind of purified, primordial experience risks concealing the long history of practices, technologies, and institutional arrangements that have often quite deliberately sought to shape our experience through sound and its reproduction. As Barnes observes, urban sound historians have stressed how, through their profound noisiness, Cities throughout history have embodied efforts at and experiences in the auditory shaping of how people navigate, inhabit, symbolize, and seek to change their everyday environments. She gives some good examples of this in her article. Parishes and localities in 19th century France expressing their significance through the loudness of their church bells. Noise abatement campaigns in the early 20th century seeking to combat the most severe effects of mechanization and industrialization. New techniques in interior design and architecture in the middle of the 20th century, aiming to absorb sound or control unwanted acoustic reflections. And the more general and longer-term rise of myriad electroacoustic technologies, such as phonographs, telephones, headphones, and loudspeakers, through which producers and consumers alike reconfigured urban public and private spaces via sound reproduction.
one of the more culturally recognized, if still somewhat taken for granted, examples of electroacoustic technologies used to modulate urban public spaces is Muzak. Muzak was in fact the registered trademark of an American company for many decades. But, like many well known brands, it has also been used as a generic term for the background or ambient music used across a wide range of environments, from retail shops to office buildings. It is perhaps most famously associated with music played in elevators or lifts, hence the associated term elevator music. The Muzak brand specifically was absorbed a decade ago by another company called Mood Media in a deal amounting to 345 million US dollars. In 2022, Mood Media, coincidentally or perhaps not so coincidentally evoking its past, greeted visitors to its website with an invitation to quote elevate the customer experience, end quote, and use, quote, in-store media solutions to help you connect with your customers, enhance your brand image, and grow your business, end quote. Today, Mood Media not only offers technologies and licensing for ambient music, but audible messaging platforms, sound masking techniques, digital signage, menus and video walls, and the means to infuse spaces with various curated scents. You might recall how, in our first episode, we introduced the notion that we mediate our engagements with urban public spaces, even without any recognizable mediating technology to speak of. We pointed to George Simmel's argument in 1903 that urban dwellers develop a blasé attitude as a way of dealing with the complexity of the city. Characterizing the metropolis as several forms of stimulation vying for our attention at any given moment, Simmel suggested that. Urban dwellers develop a capacity to cope with this by fragmenting their attention so as not to be overwhelmed. Adriana de Souza e Silva and Jordan Frith, in their 2012 book Mobile Interfaces in Public Spaces, situate mobile media forms and technologies as simply additional ways, albeit ways of increasing importance, for us to deal with the complexity of urban public space. They point out that one of the first mobile media forms used in this kind of way were books. Though we may think of books as intrinsically mobile, this has not always been the case. Early book cultures were predominantly based around reading in libraries. Paperbacks went hand in hand with several transformations in daily cultural practices. Notably, says de Souza e Silva and Frith, they helped to abate bourgeois anxieties about the novel situation in growing industrial cities of facing one another on long train journeys. Reading books And newspapers became highly desirable forms of urban coping. In the language of sociologist Irving Goffman, media like this are often used as involvement shields. Many writers on mobile media, including de Souza e Silva and Frith, draw on Goffman's interactional sociology. Goffman was interested in the complex ways we participate and present ourselves in social encounters and milieus. One distinction Goffman makes. Relevant for us here is between dominating and subordinate involvement. 
If you read on a train, for example, you are in some ways removing yourself from the dominating involvement, which is commuting. If the ride is going smoothly, you can become quite immersed, even lost in what you're reading. But this apparent removal is only temporary. It is subordinate to the dominant action of commuting, something you will recognize immediately when you notice you've arrived at, or perhaps unfortunately missed, your stop. The myriad ways we use media as involvement shields is well understood, certainly by daily commuters. In 2012, there was a sudden flourishing of official-looking gorilla stickers placed throughout the London underground. One proclaimed, quote, no eye contact, penalty, 200 pounds, end quote. Another warned, quote, don't acknowledge fellow passengers or sustain eye contact beyond two seconds. Please respect urban solitude, end quote. And one, paired with an iPod icon, read, iPods must be worn at all times. If you don't have an iPod, then play with your phone, read a newspaper, or pretend to be asleep, end quote. It's a sunny. In 1979, electronics company Sony introduced its Walkman. Initially, it only had this name in Japan. In the United States, it was the Soundabout. In Sweden, it was the Freestyle. And in the UK, it was the Stowaway. The first Walkman was effectively a pared-down cassette recorder, with the record function and speaker removed to create a headphone-only cassette player. Worried that this new technology would be antisocial, Sony's first Walkman had two audio jacks with separate volume controls and a hotline button which activated a tiny built-in microphone to partially mute the sound and allow one user to speak to the other, features which were subsequently phased out. The cultural implications of the Walkman were substantial and wide-ranging. So much so that, in their 1997 book, Doing Cultural Studies, Paul Duguay, Stuart Hall, and others built their novel theoretical framework, what they called the Circuit of Culture, through the specific story of the Walkman as a cultural artifact. A few years later, Michael Bowles' Year 2000 book, Sounding Out the City, became the first serious academic study to focus on how the Walkman and similar devices reshaped how their users experienced and navigated everyday urban life. Bowles combined insights from critical theory— especially the work of Walter Benjamin and Theodore Adorno, with what he described as an ethnographic, phenomenological method, informed by Henri Lefebvre and Irving Goffman. Like many writers studying sound or the auditory, Bull positioned his book as a counterpoint to the dominance of visual media in scholarly analysis. Bull ends the book with a useful typology of what he calls personal stereo use, which showcases the range of his findings. Personal stereos are used, he says, to block out the unwanted sounds of the city and avoid sensory overload. They are used to reduce the discomfort of being surrounded by crowds, a kind of oral involvement shield. Contrastingly, they are sometimes used to cope with being alone in public, such as when walking along a deserted street. They are technologies which can provide an aesthetic experience to augment or suit the environment a user is in, often based on memories. 
They can help abate boredom, reclaiming the tedious stretches of an everyday journey or a repetitive routine with one's own surrogate auditory narrative. They can also serve as a form of companionship, a way of not being alone. For some, they can help address a sense of mental chaos or expunge unwanted thoughts and feelings. Particularly for female users, such devices can be used to deter pestering by unwanted others. They can also be a means to instill energy or action when we want to use them to move our body alongside a rhythm. And they can constitute group exclusivity, for example, when one shares headphones with a friend. As this typology makes clear, Bull obviously regards the use of such technologies as diverse. And yet, his overall argument emphasizes how personal sound devices are a means of sounding out the complexity of the city, a form of fragmenting one's attention to avert the mental chaos of the metropolis described by Simmel. Many enjoy cities precisely for their chaos and diversity, of course, but personal stereo use gives people a capacity, Bull says, to take back some phenomenological control as they move through their everyday urban environments, to disregard unwanted elements and partially supplant these auditorily. If the television suburban nexus rested on bringing a mediated public world into private spaces, personal sound devices offer the converse, a means to bring one's private media into public spaces. Arguably, Bull has very good reason to emphasize the use of personal sound technologies towards the cultivation of private solitude. As Matthew Jordan shows in his chapter for the 2017 edited book Conditions of Mediation, display advertising for noise cancellation headphones from companies like Sony or Bose clearly evoke the benefits of solitude against, for instance, annoying children on a flight or street construction. In so doing, Jordan argues, they tap into long-standing cultural and even philosophical ideas about how we define undesirable sound, that is noise, and the means with which we try to quieten it. In his later 2007 book, Sound Moves, Bull in some ways reboots his earlier study in the wake of the new technological capacities and practices wrought by what he calls iPod culture. For Bull, The novel freedom of having a very large music library, even one's entire music library, to hand, only further accentuates the desire of users to fill a perceived absence in public spaces with customized listening experiences. In this new situation, where one can easily construct playlists or just hit shuffle, users are presented with myriad new capacities to curate their auditory experience, to flesh out a privatized auditory identity from the palm of their hand. In a notable 2007 article in the journal Information, Communication, and Society, David Beer provides us with a useful qualification to Bull's studies of personal sound technologies. He appreciates the usefulness of Bull's work, particularly the typology we've cited. Yet he is critical of Bull's overarching argument, which Beer says ultimately understands the use of personal sound devices as a form of withdrawal, an act of shutting out the city with alternative sounds. Rather than regarding the phenomenological control that personal sound devices afford as akin to a bubble, a separation from the city, Beer argues that 
Listening with sound devices is a fully-fledged part of the urban auditory experience. Beer proposes an alternative idea to Bull's solitude. Tuning out. This is not so much a form of urban escape, he says, but escape, the active reconfiguring of the urban experience with sound. Drawing on William Mitchell's 2003 book, Me Plus Plus, Beer suggests we think of personal sound technologies as part of an urban mise-en-scene. This term, which in English means placing on stage, was used by Mitchell to discuss how our experience of moving through the city involves both elements in the physical environment we traverse, but also elements afforded by the technologies we carry with us. While Mitchell was interested in describing a virtual urban overlay, for Beer, this idea invites us to remember that personal sound devices are less a way of removing ourselves from the city, but rather a means of actively modifying, even remixing, the urban experience. Returning to Sarah Barnes' 2014 article we mentioned earlier, this orientation to sound as an active modulation of the urban experience is strongly present in the work of many sound artists, such as Janet Cardiff or Betsy Biggs. Sound art practices tend to emphasize, Barnes suggests, the auditory engagement of urban spaces and places. Practices which often deploy the apparent private nature of personal sound technologies to disrupt the regulatory nature of urban public spaces. For Betsy Biggs, writing in 2008, the use of personal sound technologies can often act as a kind of soundtrack, in which the material urban spaces through which one moves can act as a kind of image, a physical cinema. Interestingly, this kind of experience was anticipated by the stereo belt, a 1972 invention by German-Brazilian Andreas Pavel, a former television executive and book editor. Pavel built a prototype very similar to the Walkman introduced in 1979, and as an aside, in the early 1990s, he entered into a lengthy and only partially successful legal battle with Sony, the Walkman's creator. What was notable about the stereo belt, however, was how Pavel imagined it, as a device that would, quote, add a soundtrack to real life, a means to multiply the aesthetic potential of any situation, end quote. In a 2017 essay for the International Journal of Urban and Regional Research, Alan Watson and Dominiqua Drakeford Allen pick up where David Beer's 2007 critical intervention with the work of Michael Boll leaves off. In part, they are seeking to bring auditory technologies to the attention of geographers and urban researchers in particular. Boll and Beer are both writing from a more media sociological standpoint. They are also bringing the discussion more up to date. Bull's original study, Sounding Out the City, focused on personal cassette players such as the iconic Sony Walkman. And Beer's intervention, and Bull's own later work, were both written in relation to newly dominant MP3 players such as the Apple iPod. Neither author could anticipate the shift to mobile phones becoming music platforms and the associated rise of streaming technologies. But in speaking to a different audience, at a different juncture, above all, Watson and Drakeford hope to take their own sympathetic reading of Beer's line of argument, that we should not draw an imaginary barrier between the user of personal sound technologies and their surroundings, one step further. As they say, quote, If mobile music devices can be used to tune out the city, to distract from, transform, and rewrite experiences of the city, but in ways that can never be removed from the city, then they are also devices that allow listeners to attune themselves to the urban environment. End quote. There's a classically geographical leaning in the argument of Watson and Drakeford Allen. One could never withdraw from a place, for example by using technologies. 
For most cultural geographers, place is a perceptual encounter of mind, body, and environment. And media technologies simply modulate this perceptual encounter. One of the most interesting discussions in Watson and Drakeford Allen's essay is around the possible implications of the emerging nexus between music streaming platforms, mobile technologies such as smartphones, and location-based data. You're probably familiar with Shazam, the mobile app which allows you to sample ambient music, for instance being played over a restaurant loudspeaker, with your phone. Shazam compares that uploaded sound file against a database of recorded music, and almost always is able to return to you accurate information about the song being played and the artist, and also information about how to purchase the music or add it to your streaming platform library, and options to share the song with others. As Watson and Drakeford Allen point out, in collecting spatial data around music listening and sampling, Shazam is able to construct rankings and playlists of music by country and city. More broadly, recent years have seen the rise and sometimes fall of location-based music recommendation apps, which, say Watson and Drakeford Allen, make it possible for listeners to tag the city with music, either by volunteering songs or allowing data of their music listening to be tracked automatically. These emergent developments point to urban music listening potentially becoming more and more context-aware, not just in terms of a user's geographical location, but potentially other measured qualities such as time, mood, and co-presence with others in a social network. Location-based mobile technologies are providing an auditory interface for our movement through urban public spaces in ways that go beyond music. While music mediated via mobile technologies makes possible a curated urban soundtrack, we might also think about how other forms of media sound are modulating the ways in which we make tracks through the city. For example, Couch to 5K running apps, which allow you to choose a personalized trainer, maybe even an Olympian who will audibly motivate you through a multi-week program designed to build up your running abilities, all overlaid with music chosen from your own library. Or navigational instructions delivered to your ears via mapping applications while you walk or drive through the city. Or self-guided tours, which pair your location with audio narration, taking its inspiration from podcasting and radio. This calls forward to our episode down the road on networked location, where we'll pick up on some of these themes again. That's it for this episode, though. In our next, we'll be exploring another subject with many layers, the notion of architecture as urban media. So, until then, I'm Scott Rogers, and you've been listening to The Mediated City.